there are different parts of the spectrum of life that have unique physiological effects on the human body. Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. Welcome back to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. This is Dr. Anna Kabeca, and I am excited to be here with you today. So you guys have probably heard of the terms adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue. Does adrenal fatigue exist? Where does adrenal fatigue come from? What are the different stages and what does it even mean? And certainly there's been controversy in our medical literature. Does adrenal fatigue exist? Or what do we call it now? Adrenal hypofunction, adrenal dysfunction. Anyway. What is the root cause of disturbances to our adrenal glands? And let's get to it. Let's address our energy because our energy is what we're in search of. Our energy is what we're missing when we're feeling burnout, when we're feeling stressed, when we're not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. It's all about energy. And I'm really excited to bring a guest on today that I've been following his work for quite a long time and he's very impressive. And he has done his PhD work on this topic energy. And in fact, his podcast is called the Energy Blueprint Podcast. And he's just amazing. I'm going to introduce you to Ari Witten. He is a best-selling author. He's the creator of the Energy Blueprint System and a specialist who focuses on evidence-based approach. He's so well-researched. He has such an amazing scientific background. He's interesting to talk to, plus he has the clinical experience, and he's really on the cutting edge of science when it comes to human energy enhancement. So in this conversation, we're going to hit on the myths around adrenal fatigue and what does that mean and how we address it as well as red light therapy. We talk about light therapy. There's red light, there's blue light, there's, and we've talked a little bit about red light therapy and blue light therapy in my recent podcast with Trina Felber of Primal Life Organics, the tooth powder and tooth serum, dental gum serums. And I mean, that's just a fabulous conversation, but also using red light therapy and or blue light therapy in the mouth to heal the gums and teeth and all that good stuff. So another perspective, another deep dive into red light therapy and really enhancing our energy. So I'm going to bring you um, Ari Witten. Be right back. Well, welcome, Ari. It's great to have you here on the Girlfriend Doctor Show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell our audience a little bit about what your, you know, why energy is your passion. Well, the very short version is, uh, you know, health science more broadly has been my passion since I was a, a really a little kid, since I was 12 years old. Uh, I've been obsessed with studying health science and, you know, for, for typical teenage boy reasons early on, I wanted 
um, muscles. I wanted biceps and abs and, uh, you know, I wanted it to, to get girls. And, um, so I was very into fitness and bodybuilding and fat loss, you know, the whole world of body composition was my world, but I, I always uh, was kind of, I distanced myself from a lot of the sort of the bodybuilding crowd that would do anything to gain muscles and, and lose fat and including sacrificing their own health. There's a lot of unhealthy practices that go on in that, in that realm. Um, and I was always very, very interested in natural health. You know, for me, I wanted my physique to be an expression of actually being truly healthy. So this has really been my lifelong passion. I'm 38 years old now uh, and have been studying it ever since I was 12 years old, uh, very passionately. And as everybody who knows me can attest to, I have a very um, obsessive personality. So when I, when I get interested in something, I, it's, it tends to be all I want to focus on and, and do and think about. And uh, I've really been doing that with, with health, health science since I was 12 years old. So Ari, you were saying that you're, you wanted your physique to be truly healthy. And I love that because I think there's no greater compliment a woman can get is then you look healthy. <laughs> yes, most definitely. So um, yeah, I was really always interested in studying natural health and I was always an athlete and I was always very fit and energetic and healthy and I always took those things for granted. Uh, and then in my mid twenties, I got uh, Epstein-Barr virus and I got severe mononucleosis. And I was pretty much floored by that for close to a year with severe chronic fatigue. And that really rocked my world and let me know just how much I had always taken this thing called energy for granted. Uh, because I saw kind of everything in my life start to fall apart. You know, my relationship with my, my girlfriend, my ability to do my job, which at that time I was working hard, a hard manual labor job, uh, working on a, a fish farm, actually. Um, very, very difficult manual labor in high temperatures. And, um, and my relationship with friends, my ability to go play soccer, my ability to work out, everything, you know, my brain function, everything started to fall apart. Uh, because I didn't have enough energy and I was chronically fatigued. And that got me really fascinated with this topic of energy. And, uh, and, and then I started to explore it deeply. And having this background in studying nutrition and fitness and natural health for so many years, um, I immediately gravitated towards you know, the people talking about adrenal fatigue. And I, I should also mention, I saw a bunch of conventional doctors to try to get a diagnosis. And then when it took forever, it took months to actually get a diagnosis. And then once I did, they, did, they had literally nothing that they had to offer me to help me in any way, um, nothing. And, um, and I could tell you about sort of conventional medicine and how they deal with chronic fatigue um, and what the evidence-based guidelines are. But for the most part, they really don't have good solutions unless you have some kind of uh, detectable other disease state that's underlying your condition, like uh, anemia or hypothyroidism or something, they could treat those. But in general, for people with chronic fatigue, they don't have much to offer. Uh, so then I gravitated towards kind of the natural medicine, alternative medicine crowd who were talking a lot about adrenal fatigue. And, uh, and I was very into that for a while. And um, interestingly, I got so interested, I got, I got so deep 
in my 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 fascination for that that I started to get really annoyed with how conventional medicine had brushed off the whole adrenal fatigue theory as nonsense and said, you know, oh, yeah, that's not a real condition. That's just made up, you know, pseudoscience. And I said, no, you know, this is real. I'm going to prove it to you. And so what I did was uh, I had this idea to basically write a book, essentially presenting the evidence showing that that adrenal fatigue was a real thing. And so I started to do this really deep dive into the literature around adrenal fatigue. And I quickly discovered that there almost is no literature. There's literally almost no studies in existence that are on this topic of adrenal fatigue, quote unquote. So that was surprising to me how there could be you know, hundreds or thousands of books and thousands of articles written on this topic of adrenal fatigue and yet almost no literature. And, um, you know, the, the magnitude of that is pretty great when you consider almost every obscure medical condition, you know, you could look up some random, totally random con condition like Kleinfelter's or Sodren's syndrome or something like that. And you're going to find at least dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of, of articles of studies on that topic. But adrenal fatigue, which is supposedly super common, was there was nothing. And also um, in the conventional medicine, right? We consider it like a like chronic fatigue syndrome. That's our wastebasket diagnosis, right? Right. Yeah. It's totally a wastebasket diagnosis. I think anytime we put the word syndrome on something, it really should be a question mark, right? Yeah. <laughs> what are we really? What is this really? And I think getting to the underlying underlying reasons, and it's it's really fascinating. And the same thing, being a, you know conventionally trained. Um, OBGYN, the like adrenal fatigue never came up in anywhere of our education. And then really trying to understand what what's happening, what's going on physiologically with a person, you know, what's going on at the cellular level that's resulting in these symptoms versus again, almost, you know, wastebasket diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I started to explore that, then to make a very long story short, because I ended up spending about a year of my life completely dedicated to the topic of exploring the literature on that topic, um, I started to find other things that were studied that were essentially synonymous or highly relevant to the topic of adrenal fatigue. So, um, different other fatigue syndromes like burnout syndrome or clinical burnout or um, what's called vital exhaustion or stress-related exhaustion disorder or chronic fatigue syndrome. And many of those conditions, if you look those up and then you look up cortisol or you look up HPA axis function, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, um, the, those, those things have been studied. And they're very thoroughly since the 1990s all the way through 2020. Um, I, I spent a year digging into this literature, finding literally every study, I'm quite confident, literally every study in existence that's been done on that. And, uh, and I basically started compiling that, again, with the intention to prove that adrenal fatigue is real. And I started encountering all these studies showing no link between cortisol levels and these different fatigue syndromes or HPA axis function and these different fatigue syndromes. No link, no link, no link. You know, this maybe this one here would say slightly higher, slightly lower, no link, no link, no link. And you know, when all was said and done, there's about um, 
uh, roughly 60 individual studies, and generally most of those just take people with the, the fatigue syndrome and compare them to normal, healthy people, you know, age matched and matched for gender and all those other other things controlling for confounding variables and measure their cortisol levels and HPA axis function. The vast majority of those studies find no differences whatsoever in cortisol levels or HPA axis function. So what I realized is that my intention in writing that book was wrong and, and that the, the evidence doesn't really support the existence of adrenal fatigue. And that set me on this big quest to then which I've now dedicated the last um, eight or so years of my life to, uh, to figuring out, well, what is the real science? What are the real physiological factors and mechanisms that are controlling human energy levels? And, and how do we tweak and optimize those? Well, and, let, and dive into that. Explain that now with what you found. So, because when we look at um, DHEAS as a marker of adrenal gland function. Okay, ovaries and testes too. But like, how does the these markers? How do you test like this HPA axis dysregulation? What are you calling it? HPA axis dysregulation, mitochondrial insufficiency, adrenal hypofunction. I mean, what is like what what terminology should we be using? Well. Sorry, there, I just want you to clarify your question. So are you asking me how those studies that I was referring to, how they tested HPA axis function? No. I, so I guess your conclusions in, in okay. finding, like, okay, there's no, I like the, I always say, it's not that the adrenals are worn out, right? It's not that mm -hmm. they're, you know, like they're, it's just, I usually say they're behind a closed door kicking and screaming, or it's that yeah. concept of, um, you know, the break and the gas pedal on at the same time as mm -hmm. far as what's going on, but definitely the hormone dysregulation that cascades from um, chronic chronic stress and cortisol hypersecretion or whatever the situation may be. So I'm curious to say, you know, in, in now, like in your um, work in looking clinically, explaining it um, and, and the ways we get to the core of, resolving it or supporting, you know, so, so what, you know, like what, what's going on with these poor adrenal glands? How about that as well, a question? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I don't actually think there's a strong case that anything going on in the adrenal glands is responsible for most people's fatigue. Because if, if their cortisol levels and HPA axis function is indistinguishable for the vast majority of people for, with normal, healthy people without fatigue, I don't think there is a strong reason to suspect that cortisol or HPA axis function is still the main driving factor behind fatigue. So I think the whole, the whole adrenal fatigue model, which originally stemmed out of Hans Selye's work, is mistaken, at least in the context of generating fatigue. Now, that doesn't mean HPA axis dysfunction is not a real thing. That doesn't occur for some subset of people. And um, we could talk about, you know, a lot of the reasons why, but circadian rhythm disruption is a big factor in HPA axis dysregulation. Um, even to give you an idea of this, um, of how big of a factor it is, uh, simply being a night owl chronotype versus a morning person, um, someone who goes to bed at midnight or 2 a.m. versus someone who goes to bed at 9 or 10 p.m., that one variable alone 
even if we're talking about normal healthy people, not, not even chronically fatigued people, but take one group of normal healthy people, morning people, one group of normal healthy people who are night people, and you measure their morning cortisol levels, then the night owls have literally half the morning cortisol of a morning person. So that one factor alone of just going to bed late and being more of a night owl, which a lot of people are, that one factor, if, if that person shows up at a naturopath's office who you know, believes in adrenal fatigue, they'll walk out with an adrenal fatigue diagnosis. And they, you know, if it's a normal, healthy person, they might go, but I feel fine, I'm not fatigued. No, well, you have adrenal fatigue, you know, it's right here on your test. Well, they don't have adrenal fatigue, they're just a night owl, and that's how their hormonal rhythms are wired. Um, the same is true for sleep deprivation. If you have even a single night of sleep deprivation or you work a night shift and you measure, you know, for, for night shift workers, if you measure their cortisol rhythms, you'll show morning cortisol levels when we have the biggest surge in, in cortisol is cut in half and those people could easily get an adrenal fatigue diagnosis, but it has nothing to do with chronic stress wearing out their adrenal glands such that they can't produce enough cortisol. It's that their hormonal rhythms have been disrupted by you know, circadian or sleep disruptions. Um, that's one common cause. There, there are other potential causes of, of that. Even you know, medications can cause HPA axis dysfunction, mood states, depression, anxiety relate to it. Um, being overweight can relate to it. Being sedentary versus exercising can relate to it. There's a number of factors that play into it. Um, toxins, but, thyroid deficiencies, all of those yeah. things. And Dr. Yes. Jack Cruz told me decades ago, he goes, when it comes to the adrenal glands, it's a light issue. Yeah. It's an issue of light. And that's, you know, I have your book here, uh, Red Light Therapy. I read this in preparation for our interview today, and I found it to be fascinating, focusing on light and the mitochondria and tying that in to healing to natural healing that was uh, for my audience if you guys are watching on youtube you will see our ari has in the background and i have right here red light therapy sometimes i put this on every once in a while um to, so to, so i can glow and have that you know red light effect so my neighbors start to ask questions <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you guys know the red light district in Amsterdam, anyway, that's not what is happening here. I am healing my mitochondria based on what Ari has, has taught me. And you guys, um, if you've listened to our interview with Jack Cruz in the past on the Girlfriend Doctor Show and, and Trina Felber, we've hit on, on a, just a tiny bit of this. I really want to dig in on this with you because that is one thing. I mean, I went through the gamut too thinking, okay, well, look, here's your, here's your salivary cortisol level and you're suppressed all around. Now we've got, to, we've got to improve your circadian cycle. How do we do that? And I typically say, you want to hack that quickly? Three days camping out in nature, put up a hammock, get in a tent, get out in nature, go to sleep with the sunset, you know, chill out when the sunset sits in front of that fire, stimulate that primal instinct. I mean, like, anyway, so... But not, so actually, in, not all of us can go do that. Let, let me comment on that briefly, because um, it reminds me of actually one of my, my favorite studies of all time. And it ties in with what I was just saying about uh, chronotypes and circadian rhythm and HPA axis dysfunction. So um, a lot of people who, uh, a lot of people think they're night owls. And if I bring up that talk of, you know, morning people versus night people, I would say probably at least 75% of people who are night owls 
will say, well, this is just how I'm wired. This is how it's always been. You know, ever since I was a kid, I've been just wired to go to bed late and wake up late. You know, that's just the way it is. So there was a study done, uh, I think maybe about 10 years ago, and it was published in the journal Nature. And I, I love how simple the design of this study was. And in a way, it's actually quite primitive compared to a lot of these, you know, fancy laboratory experiments. They essentially just took a bunch of, of night owls and they sent them on a camping trip for seven days. And all of these people who were self-proclaimed night owls who, you know, swore that their natural bedtime is 2 a.m. or what, whatever it is, within literally less than a week of just being on a camping trip with no man-made artificial lights, uh, started going to bed on their own with nobody prompting them, started going to bed at 10 p.m. roughly and waking up on their own with no alarm clock around 6 or 6.30 a.m. And that's within one week of doing that. So uh, anyway, that's just to talk about, you know, the, the to your point that to the power of uh, these inputs to that biological, biological clock in our brain, and in turn, how that then ties back in with how it regulates our hormonal rhythms of everything that's tied to the circadian clock. And there are many hormones that are, including cortisol, including melatonin, testosterone, among others, cortisol as well. I think it's fascinating. So then the the consequence, the so when working with this crashing energy, the otherwise diagnosed um, chronic fatigue syndrome or just chronic or fatigue or adrenal fatigue or that, again, we don't use that terminology anymore, right? In adrenal fatigue. And again, I've run the gamut on trying to get to understand what's happening. And um, our bodies are just amazing. Our bodies are just amazing. And, and one of the things I like that nature study looking at that camping, and I thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to source it and put a link in our show notes. Um, is that, you know, I will say, we, you know, mother, mother nature always wins. <laughs> we have to work with our design, you know, that part of biohacking, it's working with our design. And, um, and so that's one of the things I really like about your work is that it really is tying in physiology, nature to our design, how we are designed, how we're made, and how we can optimize, how we can create the Olympians of, of modern day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think to, to answer your, your question in a, in a broader way, um, my paradigm of what really controls our energy levels largely revolves around the mitochondria and the brain to some extent. But um, to, to simplify, the mitochondria are really, much more so than the adrenal glands or the HPA axis, are really playing a central role in regulating our energy levels. And this is an important distinction because, um, you know, we were taught in uh, high school and, and college biology classes or medical school to think of mitochondria as these sort of, you know, we're, we're always taught they're the powerhouses of the cell and they're the sort of almost they're, they're presented in a way where like they're the, these mindless energy generators that essentially just take in carbs and fats and pump out, uh, pump out ATP, pump out cellular energy. But actually in the last decade or so, it's been discovered that they're much more than just these mindless energy generators that are taking commands from everything else. They are actually giving a lot of the commands to everything else. And they are in fact, 
exquisitely sensitive uh, environmental sensors. In addition to their role as energy generators, they are environmental sensors. And they are, uh, I, I think it's reasonable to say that they are literally the most sensitive organ in our body as far as detecting when things are not right. Detecting when the body is under attack or under threat or under stress of some kind. And um, this it's is almost a command center then. Can we yes. call it the command center? Doctor, and this is largely thanks to the work of Dr. Robert Navio, who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego Medical School. Um, absolutely brilliant guy. I think he's one of the most brilliant scientists of the last century. And um, he has done seminal work on something that he termed the cell danger response. And to, to the point of what you were just saying, he, he, he terms the mitochondria the central hub of the wheel of metabolism. That's how he phrases it. And what this, this work really talks about is that, again, mitochondria are more than just energy generators. They are cell danger sensors and energy regulators. So these two functions, um, you, you can think of mitochondria as essentially having two, mode, two modes, either peacetime metabolism, which is energy production, or wartime metabolism, which is the cell danger response, which is shifting the cells into defense mode to defend against threats. Now, what's important about that is that um, these two modes are mutually exclusive. So to the extent that mitochondria are um, shifting into defense mode or wartime metabolism, they are shutting down energy production. So from this paradigm, we can essentially think of Actually, let me interject uh, one, one other point. Mitochondria can detect all kinds of things. So what are, what are they detecting? They can detect the presence of infectious microbes, pathogens. They can detect um, signals that the diet is poor. They can detect air pollution. They can detect psychological stress. They can detect cigarette smoking and alcohol consumption. They can detect um, heavy metal exposure or other you know, pesticides or other kinds of, of toxins xenoestrogens and um, all kinds of things. Um, and the reason that they can detect those is because biochemically, a lot of those things get reduced into certain specific um, molecules, like for example, inflammatory cytokines. Uh, so the mitochondria will respond to the presence of elevated inflammatory cytokines, whether it's from a poor diet, whether it's from sleep deprivation and circadian rhythm disruption, whether it's from psychological stress or toxins or air pollution or any other source of stressor or an infectious you know, microbe, it will detect the presence of that increased inflammation and will begin to shift the cells out of energy production mode into defense mode. And that in turn, as Dr. Navio says, the central hub of the wheel of metabolism is then issuing orders uh, back to, for example, the mito back to the nucleus of the cell as far as which genes to express, which genes to turn on or off. That's a process called retrograde signaling. It's not the genes just giving orders to the mitochondria. It's the mitochondria picking up on what's going on in the environment and send sending signals back to the nucleus of the cell, to the genes, as far as what genes to turn, turn on or off through epigenetic regulation. 
So um, the mitochondria really are key central players in regulating human energy levels and our energy levels to, to oversimplify a bit, but I think it's largely accurate. Our energy levels are essentially a reflection of the degree to which our mitochondria are sensing the presence of threats or danger in the environment, in our bodies, and are turning down energy production in response to that. I am writing notes. I'm always writing notes. I can't think without a pen in my hand, it seems. So, um, you know, this is fascinating. And I have to ad admit that as I was talking to this, I flashed back to thinking of mitochondria like we think of our, you know, microbiome, our bacteria and our gut. And remembering Dr. David Perlmutter, who I admire greatly and, and I adore, at one of our medical conferences, he read, Horton Hears a Who on stage. <laughs> And so if you guys remember the Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who, there's this little, this who, you know, these who, whovilles living on this you know, flower, essentially, and Horton, this elephant with his big ear, hears it, and no one else believes him until finally, until finally they do. And I kind of visualize mitochondria being the same way, like picking up with everything so sensitive, so in tune, so like, you know, like just present that it's it's picking up on it's picking up on everything and signaling and and you know that command center kind of view um, and like central hub of the wheel of metabolism. I, I really like that quote too because I can the, it, we need to empower the metabolism and you're gonna give us the top three ways to increase mitochondrial function and empower our metabolism because that's something we deal with especially as as we get older and our hormones are shifting. So, um, but I was thinking about that Horton here's a who and <laughs> how, no, you know, yeah. the more we get, again, energetic molecules. And I always say when it comes to testing hormones, we really haven't been able to test them well. That's why we look at saliva, urine, blood. I mean, every body fluid, I'm going to test it, but they're energetic molecules until we can assess energetically the hormone fluidity then you're really not gonna have a great picture. We can get close, but that's where our great clinical you know, ability comes in. And again, the empower, empowering the individual to be more intuitive. I was very interested when you talked about those that think they're night owls, right? And, you know, and I'm probably one of them. I, I, you know, I don't sleep, I don't sleep a lot, but I, I love to stay in bed, but I don't love to, I don't sleep a lot. That's been something. And um, so camping and getting out in nature has been one of those hacks that I found to be so incredibly useful. So intuitively, you know, finding answers like what gives you the best results long-term? How do you biohack your body long-term? Because often if we're drinking our coffee, we're, you know, reading our electronic devices, we're completely disrupting our natural mechanism. And it comes back to mother nature always wins. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I appreciate this and that bringing, you know, this to light, no pun intended <laughs> about <laughs> adrenal fatigue, but um, let's talk. Okay. So now we, we're going to, with the research and with what you found in empowering our mitochondria, right? Getting to the underlying, underlying issue that we're experiencing this crashing fatigue or chronic fatigue, or just, you know, I don't want to do it anymore type of attitude, right? So, yeah. So basically the, the big picture is 
any source of, of stress in the environment. So again, whether it's toxins, whether it's poor diet, whether it's psychological stress, sleep deprivation, circadian rhythm disruption, or uh, light deficiencies and toxicities can also lead to mitochondria shifting out of energy mode into fatigue mode. Wait, light deficiencies and toxicities of light or like toxicities, hormone disruptor toxicities? No, toxicities of light. Mm. So we have, we, most people have both deficiencies and toxicities of light. They're suffering agree. from both. So, um, and, and that's because light isn't just one thing. The right way to think about light is in the same way we think about nutrition, right? We, the human body needs um, many different kinds of nutrients. We need macronutrients. We need carbs, fats, and proteins, and fiber. We need um, many different minerals. We need many different vitamins in order for our cells to express optimal health. And it's possible to have deficiencies or toxicities in really any of those. Um, now, light is very much the same way. There are different, you could call them light nutrients. There are different parts of the spectrum of light that have unique physiological effects on the human body. Now, we've mentioned kind of one of those indirectly in passing, which is primarily blue light, to some extent green wavelengths of light that interact with the circadian clock in our brain. And um, the, that is a pathway where light photons are traveling, they're entering our eyes, they're feeding back through nerves, translating those photons into electrical impulses, traveling on nerves, feeding back into the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain, which is where our circadian clock is. And that in turn is then regulating all kinds of neurotransmitters and hormones that are then impacted or tied to that circadian rhythm. So that's one type of light nutrient and one mechanism that it affects human physiology in a massive way, right? In, a, in, in such a profound way that, yeah, I mean, just think about the fact that every night through no volition of your own, whether you like it or not, your brain enters an entirely different state of consciousness for, you know, six to 10 hours. And then at the next morning, through no volition of your own, it wakes up out of that state of consciousness and enters an, an entirely different state of consciousness. And, and that, is, that is entirely regulated by the circadian clock in our brain, which is impacting on these different neurotransmitters and hormones that are controlling that. And it's to, to a large extent in, impacting all kinds of other things from your energy levels to your mood, to your, your cognitive function, um, to, you know, all the things that testosterone and cortisol and melatonin uh, are uh, impacting in our physiology, which is a lot, massive impact on our, on our, on our overall health. Well, um, and, you know, just to pause there to really emphasize that blue light disruption of the hormonal cascade, and we see a celibacy syndrome that's yes. kind of been portrayed. And we've seen that initially, I think it was reported in Japan among young men with a celibacy syndrome because of the chronic uh, blue light you know, smartphone. And then we've also noted uh, testosterone insufficiency. And again, um, every time the phone dings, like dopamine's going off, that's got to be, you know, again, we're going to rob some testosterone to produce that dopamine too, in yeah. a way. So there's um, multiple levels where that can come into this celibacy syndrome. Exactly. Not good for any relationship, in case anyone yes. was wondering. But <laughs> We're going to get the energy up and yeah, move celibacy yeah. to where it belongs. Yes. So there, there is both, uh, even with that one light nutrient of 
blue light, there is both a light deficiency and a toxicity present. And it has to do with the timing because most people are deficient in blue light during the day. They're not getting enough bright, intense light, which we primarily can only get by going outdoors where there's a roughly thousand fold difference in the light intensity from indoor to outdoor environments. Um, and that, that is very important. We could delve into why, but I don't want to digress too much. Well, I do uh, want to pause because we go, want to go okay. out and not shield our eyes. Like I always tell clients, if you can, if you can't go outside without sunglasses on, you know, you, number one, a vitamin D deficiency, but you're doing really, you know, a lot of harm to your body. I wonder where what your take is on that. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, and are you talking about regular glasses or sunglasses in particular? Well, you know, the truth is both. The truth is both, but you know, being a glasses wearer or a contacts wearer, it's, I remember, you know, just thinking, okay, I've got to take my glasses off to look and I try to go out before I put contacts in when I'm wearing them. But I think yeah. it's both, right? But definitely sunglasses, but even our regular eyeglasses and contacts. Yes, yes. And um, so everything you said is true. And there's also an impact on the circadian rhythm in terms of the light intensity differential between what we're exposed to during the daytime and the nighttime as far as regulating that circadian clock. So if somebody is, is spending all day indoors in uh, you know indoor lighting, looking at computer screens and phone screens and that, that kind of thing, like many people are, and then at nighttime after the sun goes down, you're still indoors under indoor lighting, looking at computer screens and phone screens. There's very little differential in terms of the overall light intensity you're being exposed to during daytime and nighttime. You're getting blue light, but the differential and the timing is not there. So um, in order to regulate that circadian clock properly, you need a big differential of the intensity of that light exposure that you're getting during daytime versus what you're getting at night. So for most people, they have a deficiency in enough bright light during the day and simultaneously a toxicity and too much bright light after the sun goes down from indoor lighting, from all these man-made uh, artificial light sources and screens, and phones, computers, and all these kinds of things. So that's one mechanism of how light affects our physiology. Another uh, important one is of course vitamin D and UV light more broadly, which actually acts through other mechanisms beyond vitamin D like nitric oxide. Um, and that is ultraviolet light that comes from the sun, hits our skin, and then leads to the synthesis of this, what's actually a hormone, not a, not a vitamin, um, vitamin D. And that in turn impacts the regulation of thousands of different genes in our body that impact on immune health and inflammation regulation, musculoskeletal health, and many, many other uh, aspects of physiology. So that's just two layers of, you know, two different light nutrients and how they're interacting with our physiology. Then we have well, well, I want to pause there because vitamin D, right? So powerful. And just the emphasis on hormone function. So, you know, vitamin D receptors in our, you know, like if we have, if we are insufficient in vitamin D, and that means it's suboptimal in vitamin D. And I always tell clients, you want to look at your vitamin D 25 hydroxy levels, and they need to be 50 to 80, 50 to 100, depending on what, um, you know, what diagnoses you've had in the past. My cancer patients, I like them up around 80 nanograms per um, milliliter. 
it's a milliliter or deciliter, nanograms per ml, and um, 50 to 80 anyway. Um, so we really want to optimize those levels and not have them be uh, suboptimal because we can supplement with all the progesterone we want, right? And we're not going to get anywhere if you're insufficient in vitamin D and also found that vitamin D was important for oxytocin to work well. So uh -huh. I thought that was really fascinating too. Again, in vitamin D insufficiency is also more associated with some of the um, oxytocin deficiency syndromes like spectrum, autism, um, Asperger's. And I found that to be very fascinating connection too. Mm -hmm. Still looking at all that science. All right. And then you mentioned how sun exposure increases nitric oxide. First of all, you know, how important nitric oxide is for our heart, for our health. One of the reasons like my maca supplement, Mighty Maca Plus works because maca is rich in arginine, which increases nitric oxide production. And essentially the name Peruvian Viagra um, comes from that side effect of nitric oxide, which is exactly how Viagra works, increases blood flow, increase nitric oxide, increase blood flow, and the importance there. So I didn't make the connection with vitamin D and nitric oxide though. Well, it's not that um, vitamin D is linked with nitric oxide. Actually, there are studies where they've looked at um, rat models of, of um, of cardiovascular disease, and they've they've shown that um, sun exposure, ultraviolet light exposure, uh, can act to prevent cardiovascular disease, even in the absence of vitamin D in rats that can't even synthesize vitamin. And the the reason is that uh, nitric oxide, which is released in irrespective of vitamin D synthesis, is also released. Um, in the skin by, by UV light exposure also has profound systemic effects, particularly on arterial dilation and blood flow. And so that actually impacts risk of heart disease through other mechanisms separate from vitamin D. So, so again, you can't, you know, can't beat mother nature, right? So you got to get yeah. out in the sun. Vitamin D is not, you know, I mean, it's important to supplement as needed, but like, again, getting out there, getting exposure, taking off your glasses to get exposure. That's right. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's important to, to illustrate to people, you know, a lot of people think, well, I can't get outdoors and get sunlight. So I just take my vitamin D supplement. No, the sun has massive benefits through totally other mechanisms beyond just vitamin D that you don't get through a vitamin D pill. So yes, absolutely. Um, so that's two different light nutrients that we could talk about, blue and, and ultraviolet. And in addition to that, there's far infrared, which also impacts on blood vessel dilation, kind of heats the body. Uh, there's more speculative mechanisms on what it's doing to cellular water and how that interacts with you know, cell function. Um, uh, Gerald Pollock's worth around, around the fourth phase of water relates to that. Uh, and then we could talk about red and near infrared light therapy, um, which is obviously what I've written a book about. And we could talk a lot about that. <laughs> I mean, there's so much here, right? But so then working with red light therapy and infrared um, light therapy to improve mitochondrial function, boost our immune system, balance our hormones, detoxify our body, um, you know, improve blood flow, right? All of those things. I, I want to understand how that works. Ari, can you explain that? And then it's so confusing, you know, near infrared light, red light, 
what light do I use when? When should I not use light? Do I need to put on my red glasses? And is that good enough? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was a good intro to some of the benefits of red light. So thank you for that. Um, I think understanding these light nutrients is important in the, you know, kind of the framework that I've given to, to understand this. So you have blue light that's interacting primarily through the eyes, feeding back into the brain, regulating the circadian clock, UV light hitting the skin, leading to nitric oxide, leading to, to uh, vitamin D synthesis and how that translates into all these different physiological effects. There's far infrared light heating the body. So you have these different light nutrients, then you have red and near infrared light, and they act through entirely separate mechanisms from those other light nutrients that I just mentioned. They actually- I love how you call it light nutrients, by the way. I think that's really very, very good, very descriptive to understand that. And, and the, the important aspect of that, just to, to, to wrap that concept up, is that just as with nutrients from the diet, as you can have uh, malnutrition, you can also have malillumination. You can have light deficiencies and toxicities in those various light nutrients. So red and near infrared light penetrate through the skin, unlike ultraviolet light, which stops at the surface of the skin. Red and near infrared light penetrate through the skin and can go inches deep into the body where they can have a direct effect at the cellular level. Those light photons are actually penetrating inside the cells into the mitochondria, where they're interacting with receptors at the mitochondrial level called a particular receptor called um, cytochrome C oxidase that accepts those photons of red and near infrared light. And a few things happen when this goes on. One is that, uh, and, and this used to be thought to be the main effect, but is now looked at by most experts as probably not the primary reason for benefit. But it stimulates that mitochondria to produce energy, to actually produce cellular ATP. So the mitochondria produces more energy and more ATP as a direct result of those photons of red and near-infrared light hitting it. So that's one layer. Another layer to it, which is a really important layer. Well, just as a sidestep, because you know, those who are my age, maybe we studied the Krebs cycle. We looked at mitochondrial function and certainly had to memorize all those pathways and enzymes. And light was not part of that. I mean, or yeah. maybe it was one line, but to talk about how it wasn't this, even one line. <laughs> mm -hmm, and it really needs it's probably, you know, hopefully it's being taught now. I don't know, but um, it it's a critical you said nutrient to the mitochondria. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it, it also, part of what happens when it does that is it actually kicks out, uh, you know, when, when the cell is under too much stress, nitric oxide can end up in the wrong place. It can end up in the areas of the mitochondria where oxygen is supposed to fit in to facilitate energy production. And that nitric oxide can actually block efficient energy production. So that red and near infrared light essentially kicks out the nitric oxide and allows the oxygen to get in where that mitochondria can produce energy more efficiently. So that's one layer. And a next layer is, this is a bit counterintuitive, relates to a concept called hormetic stress. So um, red and near infrared light stimulates 
the you know uh, dr dr Quebecca, maybe i i'm gonna try to solve my light situation i have um Sun's going down here. So I know you're getting in the dark. I was at that situation a little bit ago, so I've put on my my um, extra bright white light with tons of blue light. I might just have to put my red glasses back on, Ari, as a result of all of this. I might just have to, with all this bright light that I'm putting in. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in talking about hormetic stress, like you know, what does hormetic mean? Hormesis is basically the concept of how transient metabolic stress leads to actually beneficial adaptations at the cellular level that ultimately confer health benefits, increased resilience to a broad range of other stressors. And the classic hormetic stressor that everyone really should be familiar with is exercise. So exercise, and this is counterintuitive for many people, exercise is actually cellular metabolic stress on your body and yet it is also linked with you know from thousands of studies showing decreased rates of heart disease and brain disease and um and bone diseases and, and lung diseases and every every other kind of disease that you can think of and uh, even in systems of the body that aren't necessarily related to the cardiovascular system or muscles or anything like that um, it's broadly protective against dozens and dozens of different diseases, cancers and things like that. And the reason why is because that stress on the system stimulates the body and stimulates the cells to make adaptations to that increase in reactive oxygen species, increase in oxidants at the cellular level that stimulates the cells to improve their own internal antioxidant system and that confers uh, a broad res uh, a resistance to a broad range of other stressors that you may be exposed to everything from um, from environmental toxins to poor diet to psychological stress um, you have greater resilience to the harms of almost everything as a result of building that resilience in at the cellular level oh i want to yeah, just um interrupt for a second because like as i wore my continuous glucose monitor almost for a whole year in working on my last book keto green 16 i'm wearing it again because i've got checking my menus for menu pause coming out um but one well, of the things that i like... noticed <laughs> you like that title yeah it's great I know. Um, I can't help but laugh every time I say it. So menu pause. I know. Then the next book that I'm going to write is about the menu pause. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. All right. So um, the glucose monitor, when I did my high intense workout, I was interesting because I'm measuring ketones and pH, checking urine pH and wake up fasting. There were a couple of things I discovered, right? And talking about stressors on our body, what it does. So for example, coffee for me with my, you know, sensitive, I'm gonna say my sensitive adrenals, all right? Coffee for me increases cortisol enough to increase glucose enough to kick me out of ketosis. And I didn't realize that till I, like I, I would wake up in ketosis, and alkaline, have a cup of coffee, and my I'd be out of ketosis, and of course, acidic. I got the acidity. I didn't get why I was out of ketosis. So, in wearing the continuous glucose monitor, my blood glucose would go up twenty, you know, on average twenty or so points just from that cup of coffee, and that was wow. interesting. And when I did a high intensity, same thing, go fasting and do a high intense boxing workout that I loved, and my glucose would go up to like 
180, 200 during that workout, really quick spike, but way back down. And that was so fascinating to me because I hadn't studied that. And just to see how your body is interacting with your environment, whether it's your mental stress, whether it's a food stressor to your body, uh, you know, as a toxic stressor, whether it's a, a workout and there's benefits to that, right? There's benefits to that spiking glucose, that spiking cortisol that we're getting. You're talking about building resilience because you wonder the underlying mechanism, how that's building resilience, creating a you know, a cytokine cascade that your body then learns how to address that and handle it. And the yes. more efficient we are at handling that cytokine cascade, the better, stronger our immune system is. Exactly. And importantly, just to add to that, our body, the human body actually needs those stressors in order to express normal health. You can't be optimally healthy unless you have some hormetic stress built into your life. Your, body, your cells actually become dysregulated and they become weak and they become very highly susceptible to damage um, in response to any you know, fairly meager stress if you don't build in that resilience at the cellular level through exposure to hormetic stress, through exposures to things like exercise, heat, cold, fasting, different kinds of phytochemicals, um, breath-holding practices, and, uh, and light exposure and UV exposure, as well as red and near infrared light exposure are hormetic stressors on the body. Um, so that's one mechanism. And then the third relates to something that I was talking about earlier with retrograde signaling, which is those mitochondria actually pick up those signals from the exposure of red and near infrared light and translate that back to uh, si they signal back to the nucleus of the cell to tell that the nucleus which genes to turn on and which to turn off. And this is the, really the big key to understanding what near infrared light, uh, red and near infrared light do, is they switch genes on and off. And which genes do they do that primarily with? They turn down genes that are involved with overexpression of inflammation, especially NF kappa B, and they turn up genes that are involved in growth and regeneration. So growth factors in particular, and those differ depending on the tissues. In the brain, we have uh, things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor or nerve growth factor in muscles. We have you know, insulin-like growth factor one, um, and we have other growth factors in other tissues. In the skin, it's stimulating fibroblasts to produce more collagen. And so, you know, it's, it's very specific in all these different tissues, but the general gist of it is what red and near infrared light are doing fundamentally at a cellular level is they are stimulating the cell, the mitochondria to produce more energy. They are building more resilience in the cell. They're turning down inflammation and they're switching on the growth factors to support growth, healing and regeneration of those cells. And that's the reason it can have such a broad impact on everything from brain health, skin health to um, muscles and bones and wound healing to um, you know thyroid gland regeneration and and so you, it basically will stimulate healing and growth and regeneration of whatever tissues you shine it on hmm. and so how do we now use the red light therapy and i've got your red light this amazing red light in front of me and um you know, the concept is, okay, in, in 
how do we now use it? Oh, I have to do, I do have to tell you though, that I do this hot yoga or sculpt classes in infrared, in, it's a hot infrared. So it's not the near infrared, but um, anyway, just, I like, prefer the hot to the cold stressors, by the way. I know they're good, I the cold is good, but. I, I'm with you 100%. I, I also prefer heat. I know cold's very in vogue right now, but uh, I think the literature is also more impressive about the benefits of heat exposure. Oh, I'm so uh, glad to hear you say that. It, 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 it's a little contrary to the hype right now, but um, in fact, I read a study just earlier today that was talking about 30 minutes of cardio and they paired it with either cold exposure after, like a, an ice bath or um, a hot bath, like a, sitting in a, in a hot tub uh, for an additional 30 minutes. And they, and then they compared that with um, doing 60 minutes of cardio, doing an additional 30 minutes of cardio. And what they found was the cold exposure actually negated some of the benefits of 30 minutes of cardio. The hot tub um, amplified the benefits and actually provided equal amounts of benefits in terms of endurance adaptations to the 60 minutes of cardio. So for, for, people, <laughs> so for people who are uh, not into doing uh, so much exercise, you can pair the exercise, you can pair the especially cardio with um, heat exposure with a hot tub or sauna right after and amplify some of those benefits. Now, here's another way, since you asked me about red and red light, one of my absolute favorite ways to use it is pairing it with exercise. And there is a number, there's, an, there's a few different ways you could do this. Um, if you're an athlete and you're looking to enhance performance, you can do it beforehand. And it's something called preconditioning. And it turns out by doing the red and your infrared light, red or near infrared light, on the muscles that are engaged in that activity, let's say you're a cyclist doing it on your legs before doing that, that activity, uh, actually leads to enhanced performance during the activity. So that's one way. Probably more interesting to most listeners is that using it uh, either before or after or both uh, your, with your workouts can speed up recovery and decrease soreness in response to the exercise. And perhaps even of greater interest to your audience is that there is research showing that it can enhance the adaptations to exercise. So kind of what I was saying about the hot tub just now, um, doing red and near infrared light therapy also enhances the adaptations both with strength training or weightlifting, as well as with endurance training or cardio activities. So it's gonna amplify those benefits. There's also research uh, showing, you know, I know insulin is a big thing for you, Dr. Rebecca, um, and what you teach your audience. So there's research showing that when you, um, here's, here's one study I'll, I'll tell you about. They measured um, how much fat loss occurred and they measured insulin levels and they measured uh, HOMA IR, which is a measure of insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity. And what they found is that exercise alone led to a 6% reduction in fat mass Exercise plus the red light therapy following that exercise led to an 11% reduction. So it nearly doubled the reduction in fat mass compared to exercise alone. In terms of insulin resistance, 
they showed a 19% reduction in insulin levels from exercise alone. They sure showed a 38% reduction in insulin levels when they did the exercise plus red light therapy, which is double the reduction in, in insulin levels. And they showed for exercise alone, a 22% reduction in, uh, in, in, in insulin resistance measurement or insulin sensitivity, or sorry, I should say it in insulin resistance, 22% reduction in insulin resistance uh, with exercise alone and a 40%, again, nearly double the reduction in, uh, in insulin resistance by simply adding in the uh, red light therapy in addition to the exercise. And did so they do that, that before or after the exercise? And was it 30 minutes of red light? That's enough? Uh, it often can be much less than 30 minutes. So the 30 minutes was actually for the, the hot tub that I mentioned before. They, that, that study used 30 minutes. But with red and near-infrared light therapy, we're talking about between a 5 to 15, maybe 20-minute session. Nice. Okay. And you can, you can totally do something else while you're doing it. You can set up your light so that it's, let's say, shining on your legs as you're on your computer or uh, shining on your back or something like that. So it doesn't have like, you know, cause that's the one thing I have it here at my, you know, so at my uh, feet essentially. So when, um, you know, after my workout, I'll just come as I'm preparing for a, a talk or, or reading or journaling and I'll put the red light on and it's like only my legs are exposed and, but that's enough, right? Well, there is some evidence for a systemic effect of, um, of, of using the light on just the blood, essentially. So part of, part of the effect comes from how it's modulating different factors in the blood, modulating immune cell function, modulating um, red blood cells, modulating uh, cytokines and, and things like that, which affects the whole body. But if you're trying to, uh, let's say, treat, let's say you're using it in, in tandem with exercise, you would want to use it on the on the muscles that were were exercised. Um, you know, so if you if you did a back workout, then shine it on your back. Did a chest workout or a leg workout, you want to use it on those muscles that were exercised. That makes sense. And then being how far in front of or behind those uh, that light, how close do we have to be to the light? If you're using it for deeper tissues, like you want to get deep penetration in the muscle, you want to be fairly close to the light, somewhere around five, six inches away. If you're using it for surface issues, like for you know aesthetic enhancement of the skin, for example, um, then using it somewhere around like eight to 12, eight to 16 inches is a great distance. Okay. Excellent. I, I know um, we're running out of time here and I could talk to you forever, Ari. So I um, tell people, we're going to put a link to your website too for your energy blueprint and um, tell people where like they should start in going to your energy blueprint. I know you've got an amazing podcast and I, I've been on it. Thank you for having me and a great blog. And you also have great programs as well as supplements and this whole, you know, your book, on red light therapy, just really helping to understand the differences in different light therapies, but how red light therapy is the energy hack, right? To support our mitochondria and to re-energize. Re and it is, you know, a close hack to mother nature as we can, as we can use at this time and how important that is and the science behind it. So I always love 
the science behind it. And plus you have your blueprint, your energy blueprint. Yes. So I, I set up a link for your listeners, uh, which is at theenergyblueprint.com forward slash Anna, A-N-N-A. And uh, I'll, I'll link to a short version, a, a digital version of that book that you were just holding up. So I created like a 30 page summary version of the 200 page book. It has all the sort of most essential content for how to use it for practical purposes and just really is just condensed as far as all the in-depth explanation of the science around, you know, for every different condition and, and you know, specific purpose um, and really gives you everything that you need to know on the topic. And we'll give that to your listeners absolutely free. So they can go to that link, theenergyblueprint.com forward slash Anna and grab a free copy of that. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you to our audience. I know this is you guys just go back and listen to this again, because I took four pages of notes and I'll put some of my notes in the show notes as well as links. And I just think it's so powerful as we work with improving our scent, you know, I mean, the, the our amazing design. I really go back to the beauty of our human design and how much power there is within us to re-energize, regenerate, repair, restore. And, um, and it's within our power. If we know the right ingredients and like you said, the nutrients. And I love that light is a nutrient to our body. Again, that's what whole concept of, of when diets fail, because it's not just about what we eat. So yeah, huge thanks to Ari Witten today for being here with us from his, again, go to theenergyblueprint.com forward slash Anna and check out his site and information links to his great content and material. And if you guys haven't got it, you've got a good red light. Do you have a red light on your website? Uh, I have I have a number of different recommendations for okay. for different brands, and then I have you know specific instructions on how to use them. I don't I don't affiliate with just one brand. I even though some brands have tried to get me to do that, I've refused to do that because I'm trying to really uh, let people know the truth about you know these different lights and uh, not just be a, a shill for one particular brand. Right. But like, here's here's the evidence. Here's the facts. You guys can choose from any one of these reputable brands. I definitely do recommend getting a reputable brand because there are some lesser brands out there with, with lower quality lights and lower power lights that won't provide the right all, all those those benefits that we that we talked about. But um, yes, lots of recommendations are there. Okay, great. Because that really helps when you're deciphering and trying to figure out what's the best one. And now as we go into seasonal affective disorder for many people and the change and decrease in the amount of natural light we can get, red light therapy can be added to your daily routine to improve your mitochondria to help you, especially if you've had seasonal affective disorder. While we didn't talk about that, I definitely know that that's you know, a powerful um, benefit of red light therapy, especially during this time of the year. So again, thanks to Ari Witten. You guys check him out at theenergyblueprint.com. Watch this video, share it with your friends, and please, please give us your comments and questions. You know, at dranna.com forward slash show, I have where you, a question and answer, a question box where you can type me any question. There's no such thing as TMI. You can ask or tell me anything. And I am really blessed to be your girlfriend, doctor. Thank you for being here today. And again, thanks to Ari Witten. 